Section 22 of Social Life in England, 1750-1850 by F. J. Folks Jackson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Lecture 8, Sport and Rural England, Part 1. I hope you will pardon the flippancy of the subject I am about to introduce, but I may say that it is not possible to understand English life without studying it. Though we are getting close to our own times, yet it is evident that society has undergone an almost complete change since the scenes were depicted in the works I am using today. Surtees caught the exact moment when the change was coming, and the old order was awaiting the signal to quit the world. In the rural England of the forties and fifties, when the railway was just beginning to invade the countryside, the hunting field was still a national playground where neighbors met, the county family still the pivot round which rural life moved. But everywhere are signs of the coming change. The nouveau riche are buying the old estates, and the Jewish magnate beginning to make his appearance. But the fabric of county society remained as yet unshaken. I can myself remember the gulf that parted socially the county from the town, the landed gentry from the professional classes, when the ownership of land was far more important than the possession of wealth. I propose to treat my subject from two aspects. First, I shall take the so-called sporting novels, which are in themselves a literature, though I mean to confine myself practically to a single author. And after having touched on this subject, I shall ask you to notice how Anthony Trollope, a writer sometimes tedious but always observant and often witty, deals with the hierarchy, clerical and lay, of county society when st thomas a becket was escaping from his enemies in england he travelled through flanders in humble disguise once however he nearly betrayed himself by stopping and admiring a beautiful falcon such discrimination raised the suspicion that the traveller was not a mere peasant or itinerant merchant but an english gentleman of rank however the archbishop managed to escape detection and passed on this little incident however shows that even in the twelfth century an expert knowledge of sport was deemed to be characteristic of gentility and becket who had spent his early days in the king's court instinctively looked with interest on a good bird four centuries later a very different archbishop of canterbury though he too died a martyr's death was known as an excellent writer thomas cranmer the son of a country squire, was, we are specially told, remarkable for the firm and easy way he sat his horse. Unlike Becket, Cranmer was bred a scholar, but in later days he too would have been called a sportsman. About a century later another English primate distinguished himself less creditably in the field. George Abbott, the Puritan predecessor of Laud, was shooting deer, and by pure accident killed a keeper, for which an attempt was made to declare the see of Canterbury canonically vacant. It was much the same with the less exalted ecclesiastics. In the Middle Ages the clergy of England were honourably distinguished for their morality as compared with their continental brethren. 
their besetting sin was that nothing could restrain them from hunting the hunting abbot of the middle ages was succeeded by the hunting parson of later days thackeray's description of the reverend bute crawley would mutatis mutandis apply to many an english clergyman from the earliest times down to our own days a tall stately jolly shovel-hatted man you might see his bay mare a score of miles away from the rectory house whenever there was a dinner party he rode to hounds in a pepper and salt frock and was one of the best fishermen in the county it is hardly necessary to dilate upon the sporting vocabulary of shakespeare or to point out that the correct use of hunting and shooting and hawking terms was considered as test of a man's gentility nor need i appeal to the severity of the old forest laws and the more modern game laws both of which were powerless to restrain the english peasant's inveterate propensity to sport little wonder is it therefore that there arose a veritable literature which revolved round the pivot of sport and especially that of hunting i need hardly say that the conditions of the pursuit of game changed with the state of the country in the middle ages the greater part of england was wooded the green wood was the home of the outlaw and it was said that a squirrel could cross england without touching the ground the chase was therefore pursued in glades and thickets and could never have been a very rapid affair what riding was done in the open country was connected with hawking a very favourite pastime gradually as the country became more open and the forests disappeared the fox which our ancestors regarded as vermin began to be looked upon as a sacred animal because of the excellent runs he gave for a long time the hunting was slow and its arrangements very primitive those who joined in it being the squire his friends and his dependents but gradually the crack riders began to gather from all parts to where the best hunting was to be had and leicestershire became the chief centre fashionable hunting as opposed to rural and purely local sport seems to have begun at the time of the regency in the days of the dandies and i have a recollection of an oft-quoted description by nimrod of the way in which a stranger was gradually recognized and welcomed when he came among the hunting fraternity at melton mowbray but it is my intention to speak of a later period when hunting had become a sport in which men who had no connection with the locality came down from london to take part in olden days the town sportsman was the theme of constant derision john gilpin's ride and mr winkle's difficulties with his horse were typical stories the caricaturists were never tired of depicting the quaint and somewhat dangerous antics of the londoner with a shotgun and jokes at his ignorance of all sports were the stock in trade of the humorist gradually however these began to fall flat as the country became accessible first by good roads and then by railways men from london joined in its pastimes and proved themselves anything but ridiculous where horse and gun were concerned mr sponge's sporting tour is valuable for our purposes because it illustrates so many sides of english country life the hero is a somewhat shady adventurer who spends half the year in hunting and the rest in talking about it and is famed for being a guest 
whom once you get into your house it is impossible to eject he hires his hunters and sells them if he can at a profit and as he can ride almost anything he is able to show a vicious brute to the greatest advantage sell him for a good sum and then make a great favour of taking him back he generally succeeds in getting invitations partly because he is supposed to be a rich man and also on account of a rumour of which to do him justice he is unaware that he is able to give people anxious for notoriety a good notice in the newspapers one can almost smell the english country in winter time as one reads the book and in imagination plough one's way as the dusk draws on through the muddy lanes on a tired horse after a long run which has left one several miles from home with the short winter day closing rapidly or one can feel the exhilaration which the sight of a fox gives when he goes away with the hounds at his heels apparently their certain prey and then vanishes as he slips through the next fence not to be caught if caught at all for many a long mile the author's description of the different homes visited by mr sponge in his tour gives no bad idea of rural life and sport in the fifties the first house which mr sponge honours is jollyford court inhabited by mr jollyford a gentleman of good lineage but only moderate means on which he manages to make an appearance of living in great state jollyford as his name implies is a pretentious fellow apparently hardy and hospitable but very deceptive to those who come in close contact with him he poses as a man of culture and refinement and also as an ardent devotee of the chase sponge cares for only one thing on earth and that is hunting and he is emphatically a man of one book namely a work on london cab fares by a certain mog whether the title is an invention or not i do not know when mr sponge has nothing better to do he takes this work and studies imaginary drives about london amusing himself by calculating the price of each one can imagine how this ill-assorted couple sponge who cared for nothing but hunting and jollyford who liked to pose as a man of culture and refinement got on together but mrs jollyford was impressed with the idea that sponge was a man of wealth and was a most eligible suitor for one of her pretty daughters consequently she received her guest with much hospitality and gave him a hearty welcome the first day was unsuitable for hunting and sponge had to amuse himself in the house of his host who conducted him over his picture gallery and was intensely disgusted when sponge failed to recognize the bust of jollyford which was considered a speaking likeness the next day however sponge totally disregarding the enchanting miss jollyford's started before breakfast to a meet of the hounds we are now introduced to a great country magnate who is believed to be a caricature of a noble sportsman well known in his day the earl of scamperdale he had been kept very short by his father the previous earl and as viscount hardup had acquired very penurious habits which clave to him after his accession to fortune hunting was his only expensive taste and on this he spared no necessary outlay 
he was always well mounted and his hounds admirably chosen but he would do almost anything sooner than take his horses through a turnpike gate he lived in a sort of back room in his splendid house and his food was of the coarsest description his only companion was mr jack spraggin who was exactly like him in appearance rode well and was quite content to fare like his lordship if he could get nothing better this well-assorted couple between them possessed a fine flow of language though lord scamperdale always said that people presumed on him because he was a lord and could not swear nor use coarse language and they contrived to keep the field fairly select by driving intruders away by their powers of satire and abuse now sponge was a first-rate horseman but could only afford mounts which were unsound or vicious his horse multum and parvo was the latter in appearance he was a low long-backed beast splendidly made and as a rule was a docile and tractable creature but if he took it into his head to bolt he did so with great determination and no power on earth could stop him directly the horse saw lord scamperdale's hounds this propensity asserted itself and he carried his rider into the midst of the pack scattering them like sheep and maiming several then the floodgates of the earl's copious vocabulary were opened and poor sponge was assailed first by him and when he sank back exhausted into his saddle by jack spraggin if i recollect aright the latter on this or some other occasion called sponge a sanctified putrefied methodistical puseyite pig-jobber for certes is very careful to put no real bad language into the mouth of his characters from this time forward lord scamperdale takes a violent dislike to sponge and plots with all his might to get rid of him his determination is increased when on another occasion sponge's horse bolts not this time into the hounds but into the earl himself and knocks him off sprawling on the ground the story however is useful to our purpose because it reveals the different types of country life and the graduated hierarchy of its society the earl of scamperdale is of course a caricature but with all his boorishness and eccentricity he is quite conscious that as a nobleman he is a great personage his hounds are not a subscription pack but are supported entirely at his own expense and his bad language to strangers has at least the advantage of keeping his field small and select for the benefit of the residents in his neighbourhood who put up with his eccentricities partly because they really regard his rank and position and also because his lordship shows them the best of sport jollyford whose daughter scamperdale ultimately married represents the country squire not well off but pretentious keeping up a sort of pinchbeck dignity yet a member of the hierarchy of which the peer was also a member though more highly placed less reputable but of the same order is sir harry scattercash of nonsuch hall on whom sponge inflicts himself after he has been driven out of the flat hat hunt as lord scamperdale's pack was named sir harry is a young man who has come unexpectedly into his title and estate after marrying an actress and he is engaged in drinking himself to death 
and dissipating his money his house is full of his wife's theatrical friends who make themselves thoroughly at home and sir harry has apparently inherited a pack of hounds managed on a very different system to that adopted by scamperdale whose motto is efficiency with economy sponge who with all his vulgarity is a first-class sportsman takes this motley pack in hand and makes even sir harry's hounds kill their fox in fine style in fact on one occasion when he has outdistanced the mixed field which attended the baronet's meets he actually changes foxes with lord scamperdale and a fine scene ensues in which mr spraggin surpasses himself in the variety of his language End of section twenty two